0: Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty
1: Beck. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're discussing mentoring stories with Pomona students, professors, coaches, and staff who work closely together in the classroom, in the lab, and in the field.
0: Let me introduce today's guests. Nina Karnofsky, the Willard George Halstead Zoology Professor of Biology, and Charlotte Chang, class of 2010- who returned to Pomona this year as a David Smith Conservation Research Fellow and Research Assistant Professor.
1: Welcome, Nina and Charlotte. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Um, Charlotte, let's let's start with you. You graduated from Pomona in in 2010 with a major in biology. Um, What have you been up to since then, and how did you find your way back to Pomona?
2: After I graduated from Pomona College... With the guidance of fantastic faculty here at Pomona, including Andre Cavalcanti, of course, Nina, uh, Joe Hardin, and others, I was fortunate enough to receive a Downing scholarship to pursue a master's at the University of Cambridge, which is a truly phenomenal program. I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And then I went on to do a Fulbright Fellowship in China, where I pursued independent avian ecology research, largely inspired by the types of field and lab-based research that I had done with uh, Professor Karnowsky as an undergraduate researcher. And that really showed me that there was a lot that I could add as a conservation scientist working in East and Southeast Asia. I then pursued my PhD at Princeton University in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, where I was mentored by both a very quantitative ecologist and a more traditional conservation field biologist. Along the way, I developed skills in merging social sciences data with ecological data to pursue questions at the nexus of human dimensions of conservation and the ecological consequences of how human decision-making behavior affects natural resources, affects landscapes, um, affects species that can or cannot persist under different configurations of human resource use um, and different uh, landscape allocations. And then I was fortunate enough to receive two postdoctoral fellowships, the first at the National Institute for Mathematical and Biological Synthesis at the University of Tennessee, and the second, uh, which brought me back to Pomona as a David H. Smith Conservation Research Fellow. And next year, I'll be joining the faculty, which has been a really phenomenal um, and exciting opportunity. I look forward to serving my alma mater in a different capacity.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. That's, That's great news. Um, Nina. Yes. You've been at Pomona teaching biology since 2004. What drew you to biology and how did you find your way to Pomona? Well
3: I had a really circuitous route to coming to Pomona but um, I was an undergraduate at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and I really loved liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a great experience testing all different majors. I think I changed my major like every year, at least once a year, (laughs) Um, but I was, yes, indeed, Um, but this is a confession, Um, but I was really anti-science. I actually petitioned out of the few scientific classes I was supposed to be taking, Um, I was interested in the philosophy of science and felt that if I did science, I would be sullied because of the, Mm. um, you know, inherent problems with the scientific method and, you know, subjugation of all uh, living things through science. And I I was really a shrill... person at that time, um, but I really loved the philosophy of science and what I was studying there. I ended up in the science and society program there, um, and never in a million years thought I would have become a scientist, um, so I ended up teaching kids at a field station up in Point Reyes which is now called the Point Blue Bird Observatory. Um, And um, well, it used to be called the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, and now it's called Point Blue. They changed their name, but studying birds. But my role was teaching kids about the natural world, about birds. Um, I was an education intern. I really loved that. I loved being on the West Coast. That was like a dream come true. Um, and um, slowly started getting more interested in what the researchers were doing with birds and how they were using birds to understand the environment. Mm-hmm. And so I started being a like a, a an intern for different bird projects. I was a bird bum essentially, <laughs> <laughs> and I went out to the Farallon Islands um and that's where i discovered seabirds which are a particular type of bird they get all their food from the ocean and they're really responsive to any changes in the ocean so when i was out there the birds were actually having a really tough year the chicks i was measuring were getting smaller There were parents abandoning their nests. There was chicks crawling out of the nest too early and getting eaten by other birds. I mean, it was really dramatic. And I was really excited because I saw that these birds were telling us what was happening in the ocean in terms of food and climate change. And that kind of set me on a path. Um, Many years later, after lots of I didn't really have a confidence as a, as a scientist, you know, I didn't really think of myself. I was like, I just love birds and I love what they can tell us, but I didn't really think that I could be the um, principal investigator in a project. But then eventually somebody who I was working with said to me, you know, have you thought about grad school? And I thought, well, maybe I should think about this. I actually have a lot of ideas of my own. Um, I went back to community college to take some of those science classes that I, you know, really resisted. But by then I really knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so I was really enthusiastic about it. Um, Of course, if you ever want to talk about philosophy of science and the social construction of measurement and all these other things, which I love to study as an undergrad, I still love to have that perspective. And I really also incorporated the, um, you know, the, the ideas that science is not, um, an isolated endeavor and that it's embedded in the society, um, that we're in and, um, it's not, it can be fraught. So Mm -hmm. I still have those, um, um, uh, threads in my life and research, But then I went to graduate school and I studied Antarctic birds, which were definitely being impacted by climate change. And I did a master's at Montana State. And then I said, this is not enough for me. I still have a lot to learn and want to do. So then I went to the Arctic to study how climate change was impacting Arctic birds and what they were telling us about changes that were happening in the north. Um, And then I was about to graduate from UC Irvine with my doctorate. And there was a position open at um, the Keck Science Department, actually. And I um, thought, you know, I really miss teaching in the liberal arts environment. I thought that that you know I, I saw the students at Irvine were so fantastic, but I was teaching a class of three hundred. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. and I had to check their IDs for <laughs> exams, and I, I actually got yeah. to know very few of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and that made me sad. Yeah. I wanted to be able to do research and teach in an environment where I really had that atmosphere that I had experienced at Wesleyan. Mm-hmm. So I came here as a sabbatical replacement um, and taught animal behavior and their, um, bio 44, which is one of their introductory bio classes over at Keck science. And then the job at Pomona came open. So I came over here and interviewed and, um, now I'm here. So, and, and, um, I really feel like that circuitous path really helped me to get here because, you know, in my, Bird bum days, I guess you could say I was, you know, studying birds from all over the world. I was um, working collaboratively with scientists from all over the world. I also had, um, you know, I studied elephant seals along the way and other things. So I think they thought, well, you're a marine person and we're inland. I was hired as a terrestrial biologist here, but they somehow had confidence that I could Um, be able to implement some of the, you know, things to study around here because I had had all these diverse experiences. Mm -hmm. But it really was not directional. I mean, I really feel like that's one thing I tried to tell my students is that nothing is to be regretted, you know, that it all will make sense in the end. Mm -hmm. And to just And not be so intentional because try new things, you never know where they're going to lead you. I would never have imagined that, you know, I would still be studying seabirds, you know, when I first went out to try it. I just was up for the adventure, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, wow, a cool cool island out there, (laughs) you know, so I wanted to give
1: it a try. so. Mm -hmm. So how did the two of you meet? And oh. um, and since we're talking about mentoring, how did your relationship become one of mentorship?
3: All right. So I, which is the first class you took? Was it 41E or? Yeah. OK, so there's a um, introductory class called Ecological and Evolutionary Biology, and all, it's a required class for all biology majors. And um There's a prerequisite of having taken um, genetics beforehand. And so that's where I get to meet some of the younger students. Um, And then my upper division classes is where um, I get to get to know them even better. So I think we first met in 41E. And then you also were in advanced animal ecology. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if there was another one. Yeah. Sure. don't think Might so. Those two. Yeah. So that's where we first met. Um, and the second part of your question was about, well, the, it's yeah. How how, you, how did we develop this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. maybe that's questions yeah. more for Charlotte. How did, yeah. how did uh, Nina become your, one of your mentors?
2: So I found 41E really exciting and transformative. Um, As someone whose family immigrated to the U.S. from a country where the environment is regarded as very much an externality, that is something that we price at zero. When we pollute, we don't pay nature for the damage that it sustains for us. Um, When we harvest wildlife, we don't think about that as a private resource that could be shared by communities instead of something that, if I don't take it today, it could be gone tomorrow. But I always enjoyed interacting with birds. I had pet birds growing up. I would watch them do interesting things. I would wonder about what was going on in their little reptilian dinosaur brains. And it wasn't until 41E that I had these transformative experiences in the field, and I realized, oh, you can do this for a living. (laughs) There's actually an academic discipline around the science of... Uh, ecology, which mm-hmm. is in, derived from the root, like the Latin root "oikos," right, and "logia," like the <laughs> the logic or the philosophy of the homes that animals make in nature or that organisms make in natural systems. If I remember that correctly, caveat is that I might not have remembered that correctly. I don't actually know Latin, but Nina's class was really amazing, and I loved the emphasis on inquiry-based, project-based learning. I found that really Empowering, transformative. Um, and I reached out, I think, to Nina after that class, which I believe I took my spring of my first year or the fall of my second year. Mm-hmm. And after that, I started working in her lab. Um, mm-hmm. I helped analyze. Some of the Seabird data that her lab had been collecting over the years. And I think at the time, though now I have to dig deep into my memory, Mm -hmm. which is always uh, difficult for me. I don't have very good recall, unfortunately. Um, I believe that the unique skill that I added to the lab was that I had worked with Andre. So I had some exposure to programming Mm -hmm. and I offered that I could help write some scripts to advance some of the analyses that were going on in the lab, analyzing these longitudinal data of seabird foraging behavior as they dove um, uh, to different depths at sea and tracked different individuals using loggers. And that was a really great experience for me, and it really opened my eyes to the types of research that goes on in quantitative field biology.
1: You mentioned inquiry-based or project-based learning. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, both of you?
3: Sure. So um, one of the things that the whole biology department is really committed to is having our students be able to test their own hypotheses, to design their own experiments, um, whether they be in the lab or in the field, to collect data, to answer a question they really want to know the answer to. And so that's something they get a lot of practice with in 41E. And it's actually kind of overwhelming and scary for a lot of students initially because they've come from you know sort of high school situations where every lab was a canned lab you're sort of repeating experiments to show something but you're not asking your own question Mm -hmm. and so it's really exciting um, and it's um, something we really try to foster and there are some students that just really like that they may have had really not really been excited about science, but are sort of doing it because they, you know, maybe they have some professional things they were working towards. But then when they see like, wow, I can actually get excited about like asking my own question and something I really want to know the answer to and be able to go through the whole process from You know, making your initial observations, testing a hypothesis, um, designing the experiment, analyzing the data, and then presenting the data. We either present them as oral presentations or in posters. Um, That's really what science is all about. And writing it up um, in the um, scientific paper format um, is something that, you know, students get a lot of practice with. And then they can go on and be able to be empowered to ask their own questions. That's something that I wasn't able to do until very late in life. And so I'm really excited that to see students like get real excited about this so early on. It's just mm-hmm. I mean, that's what science should be and is, is about and um, is the best part. So that's that's what the inquiry based is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so with with Charlotte, um, you know, she definitely had this passion for birds um, <laughs> and um, and, you know, loved the field work. And I could. So we would spend our labs for 41E up at the Bernard Field Station. And that's where we were carrying out all of our field experiments and and. Um, You know, for a lot of students, that's also a really new, potentially frightening experience. You're out of the lab, you're out in nature, you're, um, you know, this is, um, there's a lot going on around you. You have to watch where you're walking because there are cacti, there's poison oak, you know, it's, you know, so we try to um, really make it, um, a positive experience and help students to know, like, how do you prepare for being in the field? You know, um, this isn't something that everyone automatically knows, you know, um, how to, you know, dress for the field, how to, um, Record your observations in the field. You know, these are all things that we want to make it um, so that it's a really exciting and not unpleasant. I and mean, it's really hard conditions because it's also so hot here. <laughs> so um, we're, you know, always trying to um, show students that this is this is tough, but it's the rewards are great. And like Charlotte just really um, was excited, like she just loved being out in this piece of, um, natural California. And, um, and then when she started working in my lab, she is such a typical, uh, uh not typical, but atypical, um, but a great example of a liberal arts student in that she had a real passion for computers programming, math, and also, you know, able to make observations in the field and to ask interesting questions, to dive into the literature, to see what's known about a problem. And so she was just was getting really excited about all of these problems that we were trying to solve, these questions we're trying to answer. And um, so I think from there... Um you did a summer um undergraduate um research yes. serp program um summer um so Charlotte and there was one other student um they went off to Montana, which is where I had done my master's, so i was I'm very attached to um montana and um was uh, they were working on a project where they were evaluating whether ranches that had riparian areas preserved, which are riparian areas are the, the vegetation around rivers, you know, up on the, on the banks of the streams and rivers. And those are the places that get really trampled by cows. And so, when the cows come down to drink, um they trample the vegetation, and then it causes a lot of loss in bird diversity, but also impacts the water um, as well. And so they were looking for nests of birds in areas where riparian habitat had been preserved and where it hadn't. And so we were collaborating with, biologists who were working with the ranchers up in really northern Montana, like in the prairie area. So it was, uh, you know, really far from anything that, um, you know, they had experienced before out there for, I don't know, how much? Like 10 three, weeks. Or yeah, year. Like close to three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. It's a great yeah. experience. Yeah. Living in a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Learned how to cook. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: So... <laughs> So, and we were laughing because, um, you know, that's the other part about like, I can teach the, you know, the sort of the theory and some of the methods of recording data and analyzing data. But there's so much more about life in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when we arrived in this trailer, it was, uh, the, there were four of us because I was with my young son. Um, who was, I think, three at the time or something. Very young. Yeah. Um, um, Adventures
0: everywhere. What's that? Adventures (laughs) everywhere. Yes, yeah.
3: And so we were setting up the trailer um, and unpacking, and um, then I remember we were going to go and get food at the (laughs) supermarket, and... um, (laughs) came to the realization that we were in cattle country and um charlotte's a vegetarian was <laughs> was yep. now i'm far less strict <laughs> and um so we're like okay so let's think and about i couldn't what... really cook and couldn't cook yeah Realize
2: realized I that too after so, i got there i was like hmm, this is a so, core life
3: skill that's so going to be interesting the first lesson
2: was like how to make spaghetti <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right survival foods how do you pack enough calories from something <laughs> it's not too complex yeah, to assemble right. for so, a, um, a budding chef. Yeah, so I actually to put it <laughs> generously.
3: <laughs> and I actually remember, okay, I'm going to say this on the air but um, there was a moment where my son yells, No, Charlotte, no metal in the microwave.
2: Yeah, it's pretty clueless. As you can tell, I didn't grow up doing chores in the kitchen, so it was, it was, a, it was a growth experience in multiple dimensions. Yeah, that's
3: great, but I think that's kind of what mentoring is it's you know, taking students wherever they are yeah. and trying to help them uh really meet um challenges and pushing them i mean they're um you know that was not an easy summer Mm. you know and but i just knew that they would have the you know the problem solving skills and the grit to get through it but you know there was i think that sometimes um you know i'm a mentor who's kind of hands-off and hands-on you know like I let I so it was there initially for the experiment and getting everything set up but then I left mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were on their own and uh just try to give them the tools for success mm-hmm. so I was really proud of them get you know what they what they accomplished so um yeah that was <laughs>
2: But, but Nina's right. Yeah. It was really great preparation for actually stepping into a more independent role that prepares, that provides transferable life right. skills. Right? Like in the Literally. real world, you don't necessarily have benign adults there to guide you every step of the way. Yeah. And it was yeah. a tremendous learning opportunity for me how to manage an independent project where, <clears throat> sorry where there were broad parameters about the question, um, about the type of approach, but really we had a lot of independence in how we actually shaped it. And Mm -hmm. forming those types of collaborative interactions and even friendships with the ranchers who are very much, you know, the stakeholders who have to pay that private cost for conservation if they choose to enroll their lands in forms of use that are better for biodiversity but may come at a cost for their economic production, in this Mm -hmm. case, raising cattle to a size where they could sell it uh, to regional distributors, that is a responsibility that they're voluntarily choosing to bear. Um, And that really showed me the importance as a biologist of working with different stakeholders. And I really appreciated that growing opportunity as well. um, Alongside the core element of how do you design an independent research program? How do you see it through? How do you anticipate and adapt to or react to challenges that come up in the field? You know, a design that you may pick that seems abstractly suitable for the situation might not work. For instance, we had to adapt the protocol that we used to search for nests because the initial search Uh, process that we were using was really unsuccessful we weren't we weren't finding (laughs) nests so we had to go back to the literature uh figure out a different approach and that was that was really empowering for me it it showed Mm -hmm. me that you know science is a dynamic process and there's not one right way to to approach and you know um, interrogate these questions and that
1: failure is just a step (laughs) towards success right right yes (laughs) yes
3: absolutely and I don't know if you remember this but I think it was when you were at Princeton you wrote me a letter and I w- I probably still have it somewhere but it was, I just really want you to know that I'm a really good cook now. <laughs> <laughs> so who knew that mentorship and
1: spaghetti would together, right?
3: Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I had to, I had
2: to uh, you know, fledge, so to speak, at some point in this very important life dimension. <laughs> so the relevant background here, I think, is that I grew up with an amazing um, grandmother who cooked, and she was, you know, like the queen of the kitchen. So we children were not allowed inside. And just get underfoot yeah. make a mess and then at some point really this summer Montana showed me oh my god I have to learn this important life skill like my grandma my, like i young is not going to be around forever to help provide for me in this important domain and that was also great I was like oh this is a core life skill that I've been neglecting how do I cook I, I distinctly remember trying to make um, like a vegetable stir fry and I had no idea how you do that I put the hard vegetables in last I put the soft vegetables in first it was it was a mess. Um, but from that, I learned. I grew. Mm-hmm. And that was really great.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> the real yeah. test of, for you to cook in front of her son now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that would be the real test.
0: <laughs> uh, Charlotte, yeah. tell us a, about your current position, um, the David H. Smith Conservation Research Fellow. What are your, some of your responsibilities and mm-hmm. areas of focus?
2: Yeah, so the David Smith, Conservation Research Fellowship Program is a really fantastic program that was endowed by a far-sighted physician, a clinical physician turned conservationist late in life. David H. Smith was the chair of biomedical sciences at his home department, and he realized that there was a huge gap in the market for certain childhood vaccines. Mm-hmm. And at the time, none of the major producers had the appetite to take on that risk to develop what they thought was a losing product. But he had faith and he persevered and he ultimately sold um, his company, Praxis Biologics, for a substantial amount. And later in life, he became a volunteer conservation uh, docent and I think even a citizen scientist with the Nature Conservancy at Martha's Vineyard. And he realized in the '90s that there was a large gap between the practice of conservation advocacy and outreach um, and engagement versus the science that was kind of happening in the ivory tower, so to speak. And he was very interested in bridging that gap and bringing more scientific inquiry into the practice of conservation, how it was applied in the field. So he endowed uh, a fellowship and a foundation that oversees different. Uh, conservation programs around the US. And I was very fortunate to be selected as a 2019 fellow. And what that looks like is I have total independence over my research project. The only constraints are that it has to address an outstanding conservation issue in the United States, and I have to build those bridges between my science and a practitioner partner. Mm. So that can look like, in the case of one of the fellows in my year, um, the staff biologist for the city of Portland. For other folks, that may look like staff scientists or even policy managers at uh, the United States Geological Survey, USGS for short. For me, I am building connections with the Global Science Division at the Nature Conservancy, which is their science and policy research shop. Mm-hmm. And I'm also building connections with their less scientifically oriented outreach, marketing, and donor relations committee. And specifically, my research is analyzing text data on social media platforms. So quite a large step really? um, in, a, in a different direction from my past training as a field biologist. But it's really been a gradual transformation through my graduate and postdoctoral studies um, to analyze The worldviews of different constituencies online, how do they talk about different priority issues in conservation? What issues are correlated? So when we as conservationists think about performing outreach to, say, address sea level rise for vulnerable communities, we recognize that certain issues can be very contested, and we might try to wrap those issues in other environmental domains that are more broadly supported. Mm -hmm. But how can we approach that process in a more scientifically- uh, oriented fashion. And that's mm-hmm. where my project is stepping in and providing tools um, and an analysis framework to help conservation organizations reach out to new and diverse audiences in digital spaces for the 21st century.
3: Wow. I mean, I think this is such a perfect example of why we need liberal arts to tackle conservation Mm -hmm. crises and why it's such a joy to mentor students in a liberal arts institution because they have multiple fields of inquiry that they can bring together to really solve some of these really urgent and difficult problems. And so I think, I mean, that is just really the exciting part of, you know, you're looking at data, but from a totally different source and different way of, of uh, bringing together all these different groups to yeah. help, to help solve this problem. And that, that's really what it's all about and why I love being here. Cause a lot of people say to me, oh my gosh, you know, you, you only have undergraduates to work with you. You don't have graduate students. You don't have, and yeah, that's true that it is different. Um, but, um, they keep me inspired so I, that's why it's really great.
0: Do you see a difference when you notice that you mentioned earlier the kind of nurturing the answering their own questions, their own scientific questions that they have because you mentioned you know the difference of having graduate students helping you with a researcher Is there a, is, and then you went to use you know, a larger university for your PhD. Is there mm-hmm. a difference in maybe excitement or how they approach and, and how, how they, they maybe build a career out of? it, do you see a difference?
3: So I see them at a, you know, a different stage, obviously. Mm -hmm. So and when you're looking, um, nurturing undergraduates in this field, one of the biggest constraints is that they just don't have the time. Mm -hmm. So a graduate student is working full tilt on one project, you know, and that is their life. And that's really wonderful part of your life when you're a graduate student, because you get to just you know, put aside all these other things and here, you know, yes, they're really passionate about a project, but they're working on it, you know, a few afternoons or a day in the weekend or, but they have all these other commitments um, and, you know, classes, um, you know, sports, um, orchestra, all these other things, but I wouldn't want them to forego any of those other things because that is part of the experience here and part of what um, will make their projects really bloom in a beautiful and unique way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, You know, so and I learn a lot from them. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like this isn't just like a one directional flow of mentoring is that, you know, for example, with with Charlotte, I, um, you know, another confession, I'm not great at computer programming. (laughs) And yet I have these data sets that are enormous. And, you know, Charlotte was able to take skills she learned in a bioinformatics setting that was really much more about looking at genome type data mm-hmm. and applying those skills and coming to my lab where we're looking at bird diving data and looking for patterns, you know, being able to identify those patterns mm-hmm. with a computer program that was, you know, from a slightly different purpose and she was able to do that and was is really amazing at it <laughs> and she was teaching me um, as we were you know trying to um, solve some of these problems and um, she ended up writing a senior thesis in my lab um, where she was um, applying some of these computer program skills and you can talk about that but, One of the things I remember, this is, you know, such a uh, sort of Pomona moment is that, you know, we had kind of gotten stuck. I remember with certain things that weren't lining up the way we thought the model predicted they would. Um, And um, and then you had rehearsed your presentation and you had written your thesis (laughs) and it was really like the night before (laughs) Um, you were going to present and you were, um, you know, really ready to just be presenting and graduating and everything was, I was really proud of you. Everything was, you know, we hadn't resolved this thing, but it was still an outstanding thesis. And, and then I'm listening to her presentation and I'm shocked because it's completely different than what she had rehearsed with me and I'm stunned. And she says, I had a breakthrough last night <laughs> and I fixed the problem and she remade the slides. And, and I thought, you know, that is such a passion, you know, that even not to let it just sit, but to really be trying to fix it. And, um, and it was something I absolutely could not ever help her with. I and mean, she <laughs> she did it on her own and it was amazing. So, oh, um, yeah, I right. so to know the breakthrough. <laughs> a little scary <laughs> to be like, "Wait, what's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> this is not the version of the presentation I thought I was going to get. Where's she going with this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, And then for that project, remember you were um collecting data from mm-hmm. citizen science. That's right. That um that's, that's right. available online, so Yeah yeah so
1: yeah. Nina you you um this 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 conversation is bringing this back to mind. you once uh said that uh you teach to give students the tools they need to address the crises <laughs> of their generation. Can you talk to us about that
3: <clears throat> well um I mean i you know I study a lot of um how climate is impacting our planet and um You know, seabirds are really like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to telling us that our oceans are in crisis, our planet is in crisis, and um, working in the Arctic and the Antarctic has really, um, you know, it's been a a scary time. And I would be really um, kind of a mess, I think, if I didn't have the opportunity to teach, you know, exceptional undergraduates because I really see that they are, you know, when you're given the skills, when they're given the information, when, um, you know, they, they have the opportunity to start thinking about how to solve some of these problems. It gives me inspiration and I see them go on and do amazing things. And so I'm really more hopeful about the world by being here. And uh, so that's kind of what I, what my, what I see kind of as it's kind of selfish because like, it makes me feel better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, um, the, yeah, but it's, um, why, why teaching here is such a joy. Um, and just looking at the, um, the students that have come through my classes and my labs, they keep in touch with me and, um, we are, um, um, I'm always really inspired by what they've gone on to do. And it's, you know, some have gone on to grad school, others are working in nonprofits, you know, some have gone to medical school, some have, I mean, all kinds of different things, but they're all really critical thinkers, really good at speaking and writing and are all really passionate about making the world a better place. And so that's just been fantastic to see, you know, and, you know some have gone on to work on polar ecology but that's not my you know and that's not what I'm trying to do is to to replicate myself i'm really just trying to foster in them um and the 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 ability to to, to have the self confidence to realize i can make a difference and I, that's what i want to do here you know
0: Charlotte, um, a lot some of your work, and I think a lot of the conversation that we've had so far is about conservation biology mm-hmm. and and how how to find answers to the critical issues that our climate faces. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the rewarding and frustrating parts of doing research in that area?
2: Yeah, sure. So it might be helpful for me to contextualize this in my own <laughs> yeah. journey, because um, yeah. that might be illuminating for <laughs> current and past Pomona students. Mm-hmm. So after I left Pomona College, I felt like I had a really solid training in quantitative approaches to field biology and field biology itself, and a grasp of how critical and pressing many of the conservation problems that we face are, from habitat destruction for agricultural production around the world, to carbon emissions leading to a novel and potentially uninhabitable planet for ourselves and for the species that we share our global commons with. but I didn't, I I still felt that I wanted to pursue a more ecological dissertation. So my original plan was to work in China and to think about the eco and evolutionary feedbacks between large frugivorous birds. So think like the Asian version of the toucan, the hornbills, Mm -hmm. and how they selected different fruits and what that meant for the recruitment of future trees and what that would imply for carbon emissions. Well, I got to this landscape, the only part of mainland China that's in the tropics. And I realized, oh, these birds are completely hunted out. I worked there for four years. I saw four hornbills. Uh That original project was not going to work. But it was really fascinating to me to consider why is this behavior of hunting happening in this landscape, despite this total collapse of what we call the faunal community or the animal, say the mammal and the bird community in this landscape. If you think about it, hunting in this type of setting doesn't have a whole lot of material reward it's not like well we might envision in the u.s big game hunting you're going out you're bagging a big buck right you have something Mm -hmm. prominent to show for your time in the field indeed people who were going out to hunt this landscape would return with like tiny little songbirds which to me seemed really fascinating and just very contradictory to what i had read in the literature around tropical bushmeat or wild meat harvest And that showed me the importance of integrating human decision-making behavior with ecological outcomes and the power to affect conservation from these, like, bottom-up communal processes. Because the landscape where I worked did have pretty strict laws against gun hunting, uh, against human entry into protected areas. Most of the animals that are left in this landscape are concentrated in the remaining secondary forest. And yet these policies are just that. They're just rules written on a piece of paper, right? They're not a living, breathing set of norms that inform community and household level decisions. What happens at the community or household level really shapes what the fate of these wildlife populations would be. So that pushed me to expand my skill set into the social sciences, which I had had no training in. But thanks to my liberal arts education at Pomona, Mm -hmm. I felt
0: I I felt very confident. Yeah,
2: I felt like I can tackle this, you know, I can teach myself, I will learn what I need to learn from political science, from sociology, from social psychology, recognize that there's expertise in these fields that is really relevant to this problem in this in this landscape setting. And that has really shaped how I approach conservation. So I see conservation as a problem where individuals have to pay a cost to conserve resources that are shared, right? Uh, This is the quintessential nature of what is known in economics as a public goods problem or the tragedy of the commons, as it's sometimes been called. If, for instance, you're a landowner and you have a private land, you can make improvements to your land, you can choose to make certain decisions, and you can rest assured that because that land is yours, you control the outcome. It's not as though you've put in an investment and it could be drained away tomorrow by someone's poor behavior. On the other hand, most environmental resources that we think about, whether it's the global commons of our air, um, air quality, right, air pollution, or an inhabitable climate, or our global bodies of freshwater, um, the availability of this resource, both surface and groundwater, these are pretty classical public goods that I cannot exclude, say, Nina from using, and Nina cannot exclude me from using. So if I am to pay a cost by forsaking overuse of a resource or by improving the status of one of these resources, the core problem is that, well, you know, my private investment could be overrun by someone else's private choice. Mm -hmm. And my work really seeks to shift norms around resource use toward more sustainable outcomes by understanding how people approach these resources using both, you know, small scale, um, quantitative and qualitative interview techniques, that's what I did in Asia, Um, as as well as now large scale text analysis using social media data that translates to multiple settings around the world. And yeah, I think uh, it's an uphill battle, but it's, it's worthy of time and effort. And I do feel optimistic, like Nina, to have had the privilege of working with young people who are really excited, about tackling these problems through a different set of skills and questions and approaches.
1: So you've uh, both been uh, sort of taken to a lot of different places by your research over the years. Um, In your experience, uh, how do public perceptions of conservation differ uh, geographically around the world? (laughs)
3: <laughs> wow. <laughs> um,
1: is that a fair question or <laughs>
3: it's a yeah, it's a fair question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um hmm. well a lot of the places I guess um I think sometimes I've been really moved and surprised by some of the places where you wouldn't expect there to be a strong ethos of conservation. So for example, thinking back to Montana, um, you know, that, that it's actually, um, that people are really passionate about conservation. And, and also I've been really, I have seen a sort of a sea change of people being much more um, concerned about climate change, um, across the world. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't know. It's, it just seems like to me that, um, I wouldn't write off people, um, who are living in really degraded habitats or, you know, that, that I think people do really care. And I do see attempts to, to really change things. Um, But yeah, I mean, I also have so many examples of where things (laughs) are going badly. It's hard to really. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's also just like with the liberal arts. Being able to work internationally is um, (coughs) is really another place where I see Pomona students doing really well. Um, They're excellent communicators and. Also have a understanding of uh, and cultural sensitivity, and being able to travel with them and to really work on these international collaborations, where Pomona students are actually, you know, collaborating as well, you know alongside with me, um, is has been really um, a moving experience, and I think really um, has has changed their lives. Um, so one of the things I've, I've done a lot is taking students into the field in different places and, um, and, you know, that's a whole nother set of, of challenges, but, um, I think that's what it's going to take. You know, it's going to take an international effort. It's going to take a global effort. Um, and so making those connections is really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah.
2: You you have probably a better answer. You can strike my answer.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think Nina's answer was really fantastic
2: because um, it gives you a sense of what different communities on the ground experience. And I think that the prevailing conception of conservation is that it is the protection of nature despite people, right? It is excluding people from natural settings or the wildest of the wild. And while that is an important part of conserving natural ecosystems, there are indeed species that are super sensitive to any degree of modern industrial anthropogenic impact. And, you know, for instance, building roads into the wildest places of Alaska or, um, you know, the Himalayas would be devastating for certain species the field as a whole has increasingly recognized that a lot of conservation happens in the context of benefiting both people and nature. Indeed, there's been some really great research from Imperial College London and from folks like Georgina Mace, who have characterized the different frameworks that researchers, predominantly researchers, have around different approaches that we use, different mental models that we have around conservation. Is it Fortress conservation where we seek to exclude people from nature, or is it thinking about more holistically benefiting both people and nature Mm -hmm. and recognizing that there's resilience in both social and natural systems to tolerate change, but to also guide those interactions into a, you know, a, a more optimal trajectory? I also agree with Nina that many communities that we may think are pivoting back to human communities, we may think that certain communities don't necessarily have a strong ethos of conservation stewardship. But research also shows that that's not the case. So there's been really Mm -hmm. inspiring academic and community partnerships. One example is the Porch Project in Flint, Michigan, which is using porch improvements to benefit pollinators in neighborhoods to actually increase social justice through the promotion of neighborliness and social connection. And along the way, this ecological improvement of replanting people's yards to attract native pollinators has a benefit for both nature and for people by uplifting folks in the community and making them feel more proud of the spaces that they live in and feel included as a voice at the table. So I've seen really powerful examples where increasingly the current generation of conservation scientists recognizes that we have to work in partnership with communities, particularly those that have been Traditionally marginalized. And there's been some really fantastic recent work highlighting, for instance, in a different part of the globe, the contributions, the really amazing substantial contributions of indigenous communities everywhere around the world in conserving aquatic and terrestrial resources, for instance, by deterring illegal loggers or miners from the remotest parts of forested landscapes, for instance, in Asia, in sub-Saharan Africa, in the neotropics, so Latin, uh, Latin America, for instance. And by working in partnership with these local communities, by uh, recognizing that they have views and contributions to make and seeing that our science can also serve them and serve their local environments, this has been a really positive new step that conservation is embarking on.
0: I'm gonna uh, pivot back a little bit to mentorship and mm-hmm. Charlotte, a question for, for you too. Um, how are you? Uh, you know, you've talked a lot about how Nina mentored you and, mm-hmm. and developed you into this field biologist and, and now into your career. How do you mentor? How do you because you're talking about a lot about partnering with others and 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 especially in, in the work that you do with conservation biology. How how do you approach that when it's time to to have the other role?
2: Yeah, so I've been fortunate to have worked with several super bright um, early career scientists, a few of whom are undergraduates in research programs. So last summer, for instance, I mentored three undergraduates in a theoretical ecology project where they modeled the life history of tropical trees that are harvested, so say acai, uh, where we harvest the fruits, and its core seed disperser is also harvested alongside it, so it might be hunted for bushmeat in this case. And my mentorship strategy is really informed by what I experienced at Pomona, and as well as good and bad elements of mentorship that I experienced as a graduate student and (laughs) postdoc lessons and what not to do. Lessons and and object lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just seek to give my students the space to pursue their own interests and to think about how this question intersects with their own objectives, their own goals for where they want to go next, and to give them the capacity to expand on their learning or growth edges Mm -hmm. um, and applying skills that they may already have to a new context or indeed gaining new skills. And I think that one of the things that I really took away from my time at Pomona is the power of having confidence and belief in your students, um, being hands-off when that's needed and being more hands-on when that is called for. Um, and that style of mentorship, of being an engaged and accountable mentor, someone who views your work in collaboration with students rather than overseeing students, like a boss to subordinate type of relationship, and instead seeing it as a, you know, collaborative, almost friendship, um, that's something that I bring to my mentoring style. Mm-hmm. And that is very much a style that I experienced as an undergraduate here at Pomona. And I really appreciated.
1: it. Um- Talk to us about some of the more important things you've learned from each other.
0: Besides cooking. Besides <laughs> cooking. <laughs> Besides spaghetti. Uh,
3: um, wow, that's kind of emotional. Like I <laughs> <laughs> actually. So um, so you know Charlotte will be joining the faculty, um, and um. You know, I have to say, like, as a, you know, professor that it, you know, to see the trajectory of a student um, and, you know, you know, hearing her speak and um, and how amazing and wonderful and what a great mentor she's going to be. And it's it's it's, it's really emotional, you know, it also makes me feel really old. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
3: yeah. Um, so, but I also, you know, like hearing you speak, I, I see how all the, a lot of different elements Mm -hmm. that you were interested in here at Pomona, Mm -hmm. you know, really got woven into Mm -hmm. your, um, work afterwards and now, you know, and continue with. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, I think that's like my lesson is like, I, you know, see students with all kinds of different skills and passions. And, um, I just want to help foster that and add some knowledge and skills and, and help them to find opportunities to use those skills. And, um, that's my, my lesson from, you know, watching, um, Professor Chang, <laughs> uh, That's and her, <laughs> yeah come, come all the way through this, um, long journey. And
2: yeah, for my part, I am really, I feel very indebted to the core set of mentors that I had, both academic and extracurricular at Pomona and Nina, you know, first among them. Nina really showed me the material tools to approach field biology and its intersection with conservation, she trained me in those skills, which was profoundly, uh, I hate to use the word transformative again, but it really changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I think if it wasn't for her class and the experiences that I gained in her lab, I would not be the person I am today. I would have this vague, inchoate passion for the environment that I probably pursued on the side of some other career. Um, And I think the other more profound thing that I took away from Nina as her student and as her mentee, as a member of her lab, was how she approached teaching, how she views it as a a process where the instructor and the students are creating meaning in the classroom together. And that is a really tremendous gift that she gave me and indeed to all the students whose lives she's touched. Um, Nina's very humble. She hasn't mentioned that You know, her mentees have gone on to win super prestigious fellowships, to go on to do amazing things. And I attribute a large part of that to her mentorship and guidance and the unique way in which she gives each of us the permission and the support to recognize that, oh, we're independent adults. You know, the world's a messy place. We don't have to know everything to make a contribution. And we have something unique and valuable to add to this Mm dialog
0: Did you come into Pomona knowing you wanted to major in biology? What were your plans pre-Nina?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I had no idea, which is why the liberal arts was so appealing to me. I I Uh liked mathematics and Mm -hmm. quantitative approaches. I actually thought that I might want to pursue, like, a biophysics track and think about, I don't know, drug delivery, but Uh I am horrible at anatomy, and I have very little, like... Uh, core interest in how human biology works. Uh-huh. Indeed, I actu- accidentally revealed in grad school that I thought humans have two livers. We actually only have one. And we have two <laughs> kidneys. So I think that shows you how little of an interest I, you know, I have as a person in human biology. So I'm very grateful that I didn't pursue that track. I think it would have been super painful and I would have realized I have no passion for this. I'm very glad that brilliant people are working yeah. on improving human health, but I'm yeah. not going to be one of them. Um, and yeah, I, I really had no clue what I was going to do when I came to Pomona. I just pursued, you know, science classes because I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I think I'm interested in this area mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for the broad uh, exposure to different areas of STEM that Pomona provides as well as the humanities. Um, yeah. I I was really fortunate to be able to pursue, you know, um, advanced training in Chinese while I was here, which let me be able to do my Fulbright in China. Mm -hmm. Without those language skills, I wouldn't have been able to pursue that project.
1: So for both of you, um, you what advice do you have for students who might want to uh, pursue conservation research in college?
3: Well, I guess. um... Other than do it. Do it. Yes. (laughs) Come see me. Um, um, I think, um, you know, it takes all kinds of, um, made students in different majors and different, you know, you don't all have to do biology. Um, but, um, to really um, explore and to really go deep when you're when in your skill set, so that you can make a difference. I mean, I, I don't really to for conservation. It's such a multifaceted field. Um, there's no one track to do it. Um, I think that a lot of people didn't know you could do it in biology. Um, and I think that's something that we're still sort of, like they think like, well, I came to Pomona, I'm going to do biology. And that means I'm going to go into a a health field. Um, and the, and that is a wonderful track for a lot of students. And they, and many students who've worked in my lab, gone to the Arctic with me are some of the most amazing doctors right now. Um, so that there's no, um, you know, I, I take students who are interested in all the different, even the health related, interested students. Um, but so my feeling is like, um, you know, it is helpful to be able to understand social sciences, to have strong language skills, just really good writing skills and biology. Um, and to know that there is a place for all of your, for your passion. I think some people think that well, what can I do in my life? Like, I need a job when I graduate. Um, how can I, how can I make this into something? And you can, um, and it can be a circuitous path, but it, you know, you, you know, stick to your passion because the world needs you. That's really, <laughs> how I feel. And um, you know, back to the the health sciences. Um, I do teach a lot of students who that is their passion. That's and but they learn so much problem solving and the sort of ecological origins of disease. And, you know, all these things are so connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't compartmentalize yourself. Don't define yourself too early. Like I've come in to Pomona, I see some of my advisees, they've decided absolutely what they're gonna be and what they're gonna study. And I just kind of wanna break down those barriers. They're, they're closing doors, you know, come and open the doors and try things you've never thought you could do. And that will, I think that will lead you into great places. It's my advice to incoming students.
2: Yeah, Um, I'm not sure that I have that much more to add, except that, like Nina, I echo that students from diverse disciplinary lived experiences all have something to contribute to this global challenge of living within our planetary boundaries. And that can be from really concrete physical domains, like the the limitations on nitrogen overuse or freshwater resources or species responses to anthropogenic land use change. It can also, as Nina mentioned, translate into social sciences or even the humanities. How do we philosophically think about life in the 21st century? There's some core assumptions that we've made as a species, um, living in the types of habitats that we have, uh, having the types of conceptual models about our lives that we have, and uh, that poses opportunities and challenges for bright, young sage hens to (laughs) explore, um, to contest, uh, and to add their voice to. So I would say there's many different ways that folks can engage on environmental issues, and it doesn't, as Nina mentioned, just look like one type of pursuit. And I'm, in retrospect, super grateful for Pomona offering the opportunity for me to be really open-ended in my own uh, academic pursuits. And I hope that current sage hens take full advantage of the amazing resources that are here at our college for them to, you know, pursue all the different interests that they have as an individual.
1: So on on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Our thanks to Char- Charlotte uh, Chang, class of 2010, and Professor uh, Nina Karnowsky. And I should say, Professor Charlotte Chang.
0: That's right. Thank <laughs> you to both. Sure. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to Sagecast at Podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.